Hi, I'm Takara Small. I'm the host of I'll Go First, a podcast all about the innovators and trailblazers in the Canadian tech world. I've been having great conversations with the founders of today's top companies that are changing the world and happen to live right here at home in Canada. If you want to know more about the minds and lives behind major companies in artificial intelligence, cannabis, DNA testing, and more, make sure to take a listen. Also, subscribe to I'll Go First wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Sean Stanley. Thanks for pressing play on our final episode of Season 1 of Industry Interrupted. Today, we take you to the farm. Okay, full disclosure, I am a city boy, but I have spent time on the farm, and there are farmers in my family. But I can't say I know my way around a tractor or any other farm equipment for that matter. However, I have discovered I might now feel quite at home on some of today's farms. Farms are becoming one of the most digitally connected places you'll find. They're using sensors, data, and digital networks to be more efficient. But why is all this necessary? We're talking about in 30 years time needing to feed 10 billion people on this planet. 30 years isn't very long. That's Jason Bradley, director of the Olds College Smart Agriculture Program in Alberta. After that, we'll head to Calgary and talk to Karen Shewitt. She co-founded a company that invented a way to take animal waste and turn it into drinkable water. Karen says managing manure can cost some farmers hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a big headache and a hassle and a lot of work and expense. Get ready for a trip to the farm of the future. This, this, is, this is, is Industry Interrupted. Industry Interrupted. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode. We live in a time of accelerating innovation. New technology is transforming our world and the investment landscape. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. These days, some farmers are doing a lot more than growing crops and raising livestock. They're also harvesting data. They use sensors to monitor the soil, the weather, irrigation, and grain levels. That information is then fed into a digital network. Jason Bradley knows all about this. He's the director of Olds College's Smart Agriculture Program in Olds, Alberta. Jason, what is a smart farm? Well, a smart farm from the outside doesn't look that much different than any other farm. But what it does do is it, uh, it's made up of a number of sensors, devices, software, network that collect data, that analyze data, that visualize data to help the producer make more informed evidence-based decisions. On the outside, it doesn't look that much different. But in the end, what it allows a producer to do is to grow more using less. So I wouldn't see anything that stands out? In a field, you might see something that looks like a small cellular tower or uh, a small antenna, or you might see a digital weather station, which looks 
somewhat innocuous, but eventually you are going to see some significant differences, things like uh, autonomous tractors. Okay, so what kind of technology might I find on a smart farm that a traditional farm wouldn't have? You've mentioned a couple of things, but what else might there be kind of operating in the background? For example, on our Olds College smart farm, we have stationary digital soil sensors. So out in the field, we've identified, for instance, in one particular field, five different soil zones. So those sensors are deployed in those zones. They're not that easy to see, but they're collecting soil moisture data, soil temperature data, and they're soon going to be collecting real-time nutrition data, so uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, potassium, as well as moisture and temperature, all in real time. So you'll see those kind of things on our old college smart farm. You'll see a Wi-Fi mesh that we have built so that each field, kind of like in your house where you have a, a Wi-Fi access, each field is going to have that Wi-Fi access so that Uh, devices, laptops and handhelds and sensors out in the field are able to connect sort of real time all the time through the Wi-Fi mesh. So over the course of your research, you're actually using an exhibition farm of sorts? So that's an interesting uh, couple of terms to use because uh, right now we're really focusing on the demonstration of this technology. So we have a a 2,000 acre piece of land and what we're creating with Olds College Smart Farm is a digital backbone that creates a cutting-edge learning environment for students and producers that are coming into the facility to see, well, how does this work? What does it look like? What's the value of it to me as a primary producer? I remember as a kid watching those videos in school that showed the milking machines at work. You mentioned autonomous or self-driving equipment. Are you testing that on the farm at this point, or is that coming soon? Where are we at with it? Yeah, it's coming soon. So there's a a Canadian company that has already um, designed to field-scale trial an autonomous platform. So it's a piece of equipment that if you looked at it, it probably wouldn't look like a tractor uh, per se, but it is completely autonomous. So a field is mapped out, some shape files are made of the field, and Things like rocks and sloughs and fence lines and whatnot are mapped out and then programmed into this um, platform. It will then go ahead and perform any number of applications on that field from seeding to spraying. Soon it'll be ready to start uh, running grain carts. So these new applications are probably also enabling farmers to harvest vast amounts of data. So what kind of information are they collecting or what could they be collecting and what could they do with it? So, yeah, so data becomes an important commodity for things like the soil testing that we did this spring. It gave us 63 different layers of data in terms of soil health and the different macro and micronutrients in the soil, soil compaction. We would record against things like rainfall events throughout the year with digital weather data and, and wind speed, wind direction, obviously all in a digital form, temperature, highs, lows, growing degree days. With our soil, we'd be able to measure when there was a rainfall event, well, at what rate did that moisture travel through the different zones in the soil itself? And then we can start to measure what the plant response is at the same time as watching where the soil is moving through and some of the nutritional levels in those same zones, then we can predict, well, here's how the plant should respond. And we can actually measure that and then be able to extrapolate what other things that we should do in that point in time to increase production, decrease our cost. And really, all of this helps to improve our environmental footprint. So you mentioned the data could be almost a commodity in and of itself. So obviously there's benefits to sharing it. Could it actually be sold for 
some particular reason or benefit? I suppose at one time it, it, it could get to the point where you know, vast volumes of anonymized data would have a value. Um, right now, the value is much more to, to the producer, but we're also trying to figure out how do we make sure that that data is accessible throughout the whole agri-food value chain. So how, how is that data going to help not only the primary producer, how might it also help the grain storage company? How might it help the processing sector? How might it help the retail sector? And for, for that information to be available and accessible um, throughout the value chain. I remember maybe a year or a few years ago seeing some storytelling around farmers, you know, sitting with tablets and using apps on their tractors as they're riding around. Is that something that's actually happening now or was that more of a pipe dream? Yeah, there's not very likely a tablet, but there might be four or five different screens in there representing different systems on the tractor, everywhere from auto steer to uh, yield guides to uh, different GPS type control. Inside the cab of a combine, of a tractor, of a sprayer is a very high-tech environment with a lot of interaction between the user and the data itself. So where does traditional farming know-how fit into all of this? Is some of the farming tradition lost or is there a nice balance between you know, the human and the technology as we hear about in a lot of other industries? There will never be a loss of uh, farmer's intuition. So we're actually trying to figure out some of the things we're working on, like where does the value of data end and where does the value of that experience, intuition, knowledge, and know-how start from the producer? And actually there's quite a crossover of that where one sort of fades into the other. But that agronomic knowledge, that, that historical knowledge of the land, of the animal, of the water, of the air, of the soil, those values, um, those human values will never be lost. At the end of the day, everybody wants to boost yields. Do you see farming, which is already becoming more corporate, accelerating down the corporate path as a result of the technology and the ability to boost those yields? It actually tends to democratize things and make them more available. I see more producers being able to access more valuable technology um, and allowing them to be able to compete maybe more on a scale that, that is somewhat still competitive with those larger farms. So, so I, don't, I don't see it as one uh, you know, giant corporate farm. I actually see this as an opportunity to allow people to do more with less at many different scales. Is it safe to say that farming will not be able to succeed in the future without the technology? I would say for sure if we, if we want to look at the progression of technology over time, we have always progressed technologically as farmers because we know that we we need to always feed more of our family and more of our friends. And so we will not be able to meet those needs to feed our family, our friends, our neighbors, the country, and the world without the implementation of these technologies on a very broad scale. I mean, we're talking about in 30 years' time needing to feed 10 billion people on this planet. 30 years isn't very long. Jason Bradley is the director of Olds College's Smart Agriculture Program in Olds, Alberta. Next, I will drink from a bottle of water that used to be animal manure. I did not do it on a dare. 
It's from a company in Calgary that's transforming animal waste into drinkable water. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast was made possible through the support of Fidelity Investments. For decades, they've been giving their clients a world of innovation by investing in companies that invent the future. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. For a lot of farmers, getting rid of animal waste can be expensive and a ton of work. But our next guest says there's a lot of value in that manure. And if that sounds like a load of, well, you know, it's not. Karen Schuett is the co-founder of Livestock Water Recycling in Calgary. So I want to start by asking how much of a burden or how much of a cost is it for farmers to manage manure? It's a combination and it it really depends on the size of the facility. If it's a larger farm, they have a lot of waste, um, 100 million gallons a year, let's say, of manure to spread. And in that case, they would, you know, need to have their own type of manure spreading equipment on their farm. Plus, they may hire out contractors that come in and remove some of the waste and move it to further fields or move it to neighbors' crops. It's a big headache and a hassle and a lot of work and expense. Clearly, your system does something different to the manure. So what is that? I like to call our system a mini fertilizer plant. So it gets installed at their facility and it takes away that huge headache they've got. Um, We say we're trying to go for a lagoon-free system where manure is processed immediately as it leaves the barn. Um, The liquids come out of the barns, they run through our process, a mechanical process. It has a three-stage process to it. The first stage removes all the solids. The second stage recovers a concentrated liquid. And then the third stage is clean water. What do the actual farmers themselves do with these byproducts once they've been removed? Products out of this are really valuable for crops. They're really valuable for regeneration of the soil. Manure is an excellent soil conditioner when used appropriately or when used in a way that the crop has capacity to grow from it. The solids, as they're pulled out, contain over 90% of the phosphorus that um, is necessary for crop growth, of course. The solids can be used on farm or they can be bagged and sold to surrounding crop growers. As well, we have the liquids removed that contains ammonium and potassium. That concentrated liquid would be something like a, a concentrated miracle grow or something you'd buy in a store. Very valuable for certain kinds of crops, and farms can use that themselves or sell it to neighboring crop growth. And then the clean water can be used all around the farm. It can be used to wash the barns. They use it often to water the animals, uh, cool the animals, and for irrigation, of course, it's excellent. Now, this water is drinkable. Is that correct, that, that last piece of it? It is definitely drinkable. Because what I have here in front of me is a clear bottle of water. It is courtesy of livestock um, and your company, of course. And I'm looking at it, and it appears to look like any other kind of clear bottle of water I've seen. 
Um, I'm opening it up now, and sorry, I'm just taking a sniff of it. Doesn't smell like anything to me. I'm assuming that's supposed to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think and you'd so, want to drink it if it had any smell associated, so, that's for sure. Well, there's that, yes. <laughs> um, so just to let everybody know that that's the case, um, I'm going to pour it into a glass of water here. And now I'm going to try it. I'm safe to drink this. Is that correct? You're very safe to drink that. All right. So let, let's give it a shot. I feel like I'm out of wine tasting now, but <laughs> it's most definitely not wine. So that doesn't taste like a typical glass of water to me. It tastes a little almost like flatter in a sense, which I know sounds weird, but has a flat taste almost to it. Is that kind of the way it's supposed to be? Yeah, so what you're drinking there is almost like a distilled water. Because we want to salvage all of the possible micronutrients out of the liquid and segregate them into the fertilizer, it's basically like a distilled liquid. So water is often referred to as being more valuable than oil. And I don't think you're selling this water to consumers. Is that correct? And if correct. so, uh, why not? What we find is that in the varying water conditions that farms are seeing right now with you know, variations between flood and drought, having a reliable source of clean water on their facility at all times is more valuable to them than trying to you know, create a, a secondary revenue stream around bottled water. We do uh, encourage them to sell the fertilizers, and that they do. Uh, one of our farms is selling his fertilizer as, you know, made fresh daily by cows in Wisconsin. And so we like to say his water and his fertilizers are made fresh every day. <laughs> nice. Okay, so <laughs> is this an expensive technology and does that kind of help offset some of the costs around it? Definitely. Um, this helps offset the cost, the capital cost of putting the equipment on your facility. But we have worked really hard to try and make this a valuable piece of equipment for farms. I always say farms are the original environmentalists and they want to be regenerative on their land at all times. So anything they can do that can create growth conditions for increasing their feed crops, for increasing uh, their, their crops that they're selling, and for increasing the health of their animals and the productivity of their animals is a benefit to them. So we have a, a good value proposition around that where the system earns itself back over a two-year two period and so they can create value from the system. It's not just a bottom-line expense. Whenever there's a hurricane or a flood, we hear a lot about animal waste getting into human water sources and in some cases creating toxic algae blooms, among other problems. So how big of an issue is that in Canada, would you say? I think it's a, a big issue everywhere. We've had interest from all around the globe talking about a way to get away from that lagoon storage and spreading of animal waste. It just, in today's food production, it is outdated. It's an outdated way of doing this work. And people need technology applied to that. And that's what we first saw when we started into this was, this is a place where technology had not touched yet. And we can really see the benefits of doing it this way, especially when farms are faced with weather conditions beyond their control and they really have no, no way to turn. What's the next frontier for you? You know, you're in a heavy technology-based 
uh, organization, but you're dealing with a very kind of old school industry. What do you see as your next mountain to climb? This uh, work in agriculture has really opened my eyes to what's going on in modern food production and how digitization, big data, and automation can be used to grow food in such a more sustainable way, uh, allow more transparency with the food companies so that we can really do more with less. When we work with manure like this, we can take advantage of everything that we put into the animals can come out to regenerate the planet. And then what we've learned here in in water treatment and in manure treatment, we can apply to other forms of water treatment and other forms of water use that aren't as actually highly advanced as agriculture. Karen Schuett is the co-founder of Livestock Water Recycling in Calgary. To comment on anything you've heard, get in touch with us at podcasts at globeandmail.com. And that's a wrap on season one of Industry Interrupted. Industry Interrupted is produced by Laura Regeer, Anne Lang, Guy Dixon, and Stephanie Chan. If you'd like to hear a season two, help us get it going by rating us and leaving a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Share our efforts on social. Tell everyone you know. I'm Sean Stanley. Thanks for listening.